You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. You can grab a Bible and join me in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 13 and go all the way to the end of the chapter. There was a story told me of a old country church pastor that was meeting with um, uh, his chairman of his deacons, and his, his uh, uh, this guy was a, a farmer. And so, as he was meeting to him, they were talking about the needs of the church and the things that they had. And he said, "You know, brother, if uh, if if the Lord, if you had two tractors and the Lord needed one of them, would you be willing to would you be willing to give it?" And he said, "Well, you know, preacher, of course I'd be willing to give it." And he said, what about if you had two uh, barns? If you had two barns, would you be willing to give one of those, sell one of those so that the Lord could use it for His purposes? He said, well, of course, Pastor. I'd be willing to do that. And he said, well, if you had two cows, would you be willing to sell one of them and, and give that so that the Lord could do it? And he said, Preacher, you know that i got two cows. Right? Like the, This picture of us, uh, the desire to share with what the Lord tells us to do really uh, is great and wonderful when it's in the... Um, non-realistic sense, right? But when it comes into the reality of uh, actually costing us something in our life, we're not really sure that we want to do it. Sharing is one of the basic principles that we teach children, right? It's the first, uh, one of the first things that you as an educator, if you work with young kids, the principle of learning how to share uh, becomes a challenge, and of course, everybody that's in uh, in school administration knows that uh, we're still trying to help uh, adults learn how to share. Right, uh, sharing your time, sharing the the uh, responsibility, sharing all those kind of things. Everybody that's ever worked in a group project uh, knows that uh, the the need for learning how to share uh, is something that we never outgrow, <clears throat> and this principle of sharing. Uh, is one of the things that points us to the reality um, that we all still always need the grace of God um, because uh, sharing is oftentimes very, very hard. Uh, We are walking through a series right now looking at the vision for us as Galena Bible Church and what kind of church do we want to be? What uh, what is the... uh, I guess, if you will, the uh, guiding big ideas of how we are to shape ourselves. And last week we took a look at the, uh, the vision of invitation, the picture of come. Uh, today we want to take a look at uh, a vision of generosity or share. 1 Timothy chapter 6 uh, begins, uh, verse 13 begins this way. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in this present world 
not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. The uh, Puritan named Cotton Mather was alarmed at the trending materialism in New England society uh, that was uh, forming as the colonists were coming in and establishing their society. Uh, And in his book, he made this statement. He said, Religion begat prosperity, and then the daughter devoured the mother. Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. This, of course, was uh, a common but not altogether certain reality that comes about when people begin to do what the Lord tells them to do. Prosperity is not a certainty, but it is a regularity when it comes to the nature of obeying what God says, right? That's a significant portion of the Old Testament is God telling the nation of Israel, if you'll do what I say, then I will bless you. Your crops will flourish. Your enemies will cower before you. You will find peace. Uh, You will find happiness. And if you don't, then judgment's going to come and this reality of those kind of things is happening. What we see as we read through those pages of Scripture is we see God blessing them and blessing them and blessing them abundantly. And so, as we have the pages of Scripture, we have things uh, that talk about the nature of money, the nature of resources, the nature of uh, blessing, and those kind of things uh, in an absolute abundance. And we also have warnings about the reality of how those things play out into our lives. As we think about uh, prosperity, as we think about finances, as we uh, think about what it means to be a, a people that are truly blessed, uh, and we have phrases like the Protestant work ethic that shows up and those kind of things that uh, becomes in abundance, we also see the, uh, the side effect, if you will, the consequence of God giving good things to people that are flawed and broken and messed up, and we see those things making a, a sharp turn away from the direction that God intends for them to be. And so this morning, I want us to take a look at what does it mean for us to live as a people that are living with a vision of generosity, a, a vision that says we desire to share, to be a people that are uh, not possessed by our, by our possessions, uh, but are in awe of the God who gave us all good things. 
Paul, as he's writing to Timothy in the church, uh, who is pastoring the church in Ephesus at this time, uh, has been uh, laying upon Tim- young Timothy at this point. <clears throat> His encouragement to him as he tries to shepherd this church that is flourishing. The church in Ephesus had grown significantly. Ephesus was a very affluent church. uh, And it was a, a church that was doing quite well. And as a church itself was being established and gaining direction and gaining traction and moving forward. And in the midst of all of that, in verse 13, uh, Paul does what he does so often in his writings. He just breaks out in worship. He's been talking about uh, the, the nature of um, you know, what it means for us to be people that are ministering and serving and being the church and all those kind of things. And he just can't help but step back and say, and look at who God is and look at the wonder uh, of what it is, he gives a uh, a vision of. Uh, oh, did it go? There we are. He gives this vision of, like we looked at last week, this invitation: come and see who our God is. Come and be uh, enthralled with Him. Uh, as he's talking to him of charging him uh, in the presence of God, and then he goes into who God is that gives life to all things, Jesus who gave the good confession, uh, and then he goes into this in verse 15, which He will bring about at the proper time, He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and dominion forever. Amen. This picture of uh, who God is just can't help but come out of Paul. As he's going about talking about any subject, Paul is likely to jump out in doxology and worship to just go, man, let me show you how amazing God is. Let me invite you to come and see the splendor of His majesty and the wonder of His grace. And and just this picture of invitation is a constant thing. And then we have this almost just like somebody slamming on the brakes and a hard right-hand turn where he finishes this beautiful come-and-see kind of thing. And then he says in verse 17, Now, instruct those who are rich in this present world. We uh, live in a unique moment in human history, uh, in a unique society in human history, with unique uh, giftings uh, in human history that, again, none of these things have ever existed before. And so it is a challenge for us as specifically American Christians reading the Scriptures and talking about the wealthy uh, and, uh, and then finding this sense of tension. Uh, do you know that the, middle, the concept of the middle class is a very, very recent thing in human history? That has not been a normal thing uh, in human history. You had the rise of merchants uh, several hundred years ago that created this kind of thing. They weren't living in poverty anymore and they weren't living in abject affluence. Uh, They were somewhere in between. Um, And then now you have this picture of the American world uh, and the Protestant work ethic that comes in. And again, you had people that did rise to be the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and the, uh, the Bezoses and the, uh, you know, the Jobs and all of these kind of guys. 
But you also have this massive group of people that are living uh, somewhere on a scale in between. And it's funny as we talk about the wealthy, uh, and we as Americans uh, over the last about 15 years, we really like to talk about the top 1%, right? And so that's the whole argument about you know, whether we should you know, tax the rich, meaning those, that top 1%, right? Or you had the, the Wall Street uh, activist movements that happened, what was that, probably about 10 years ago now. Uh, that was, again, that, that picture of, you know, then there's this small group of people that hold significant wealth and the rest of us, But again, even that whole picture uh, is so uh, geocentric and chronocentric to the moment that we are living in right now that if we pull ourselves out of that and just look at our own time frame in the world around us, and we would look at the reality of the poorest among us are insanely wealthy to the rest of the world, or a significant portion of the rest of the world. If you take the population of America and hold it against the population of the world, we are the 1%. That's that's where we're living. So I emphasize all of this to say that when we read the passages of Scripture that talk about encourage the rich or warnings to the rich, this is not warnings to a very select few of American people that hold a, uh, a mount, you know, that make daily what you and I might make in our lifetime. It's not talking about those people. They're included in that. But it's talking to us. To every single one of us. And so this picture of instruct now the rich in this present world is a, uh, a word to us that we ought to pay attention to. And the invitation that he is giving him here is he begins it in the negative. So tells them, don't do these things. And then he moves to the positive. I want you to do these things. And he's going to conclude uh, in a warning. But I want us to look at it from the nature of sharing. The first is he calls us to share relational humility. Share relational humility. Paul exhorts Timothy to warn the rich not to be conceited. Or your translation might also say haughty. This uh, word that is used here emphasizes the point of a, a sense of arrogance towards other people because of the nature of what they have. And again, when we think of the nature of wealth, Don't just think of wealth in terms of finances. Uh, There are people that are incredibly wealthy in our present day that do not have much by way of actual finances. Wealth can be knowledge. Wealth can be influence. Wealth can be time. Wealth can be resources. Wealth can be talents. And our society, our world, allows people to flourish in those kind of things. And so as we think about this, as he calls us to relational humility, there's a warning for us not to be conceited. When you think of how the world looks in on the church today, 
Do you think that the world as a generally, and again I'm thinking in our present day world as they look in on us as American Christians, would they define us as a people that are humble? Probably not, right? Probably not. The definition that looks in on, uh, on Christianity would probably not be considered humble. Uh, it may have terms that are used against uh, it that are uh, unfair and unrealistic, but humble is probably not the defining quality of that. This nature of being conceited, this nature of being uh, arrogant, as it comes to what we have, what we possess is a picture that we should never have as Christians. In the sense of we have somehow accomplished this in and of ourselves. Everything that we have as Christians. Everything. It does not matter what it is that we have. Everything that we have came as a direct gift from our God. And you may say, well Chris, now wait a second. You don't know how hard I've worked. Who gave you muscles? Who gave you breath? Who gave you the days that you worked? Who gave you anything that you have? If we are truly Christians, if we have truly done what Paul has done in this, that we've we've come to this place where we have seen God in all of His glory, in all of His splendor, in all of His wonder, nobody comes away from genuinely seeing God in a position of arrogance. Right? Moses didn't walk down the mountain glowing and saying, Look my face, y'all. Right? That isn't what he did. He came down and covered up his face of like, don't look at me. Don't right? There's there's not this sense of aura about us that we ought to strut about and say, Look how amazing we are because we've arrived. We've figured it out. We're so wonderful, right? Now again, humility is not uh, a self-loathingness. Some people think that humility is just, well, we should just talk poorly about ourselves. I do love C.S. Lewis's definition of humility. He said that uh, humility is not a self-abasement or thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's being truthful about who we actually are. True biblical humility is actually born out of a sense of brokenness. And humility, uh, perceived humility that doesn't come from a place of brokenness is really just a masked arrogance. It's why God says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Grace only comes about by this reality that we actually need Him. To the extent that we understand our neediness, that's the extent that God gives us His graciousness. And so we as Christians, as we are charged, as we as I should say American Christians specifically, as this rich in the present world, ought not to be conceited. And the reason that I called this uh, share relational humility rather than just humility in general for us that we ought to be a public or a, uh, a humble people is that we are called into relationship with, the peop- or with other people and we can't be conceited 
uh, without actually interacting with other people. So we're called to be the opposite of that. We're called to live in genuine humility with other people. And this is a very vulnerable place to be because genuine humility is actually allowing people to see the real you. Now sometimes that means you actually allow people to see the real you that's pretty awesome. Because the reality is, God has made you incredible. Like we, we can take the opposite uh, view of, um, you know, sometimes when we think of our sinfulness, we can just think there's absolutely nothing uh, good or unique or wonderful about me and going like, no, that's not, that's not the God fashioned you in an incredible way, right? But it doesn't mean that we take those gifts and then we just say, oh yeah, no, I'm really, I'm really terrible about those things. Uh, it's actually allowing people in to see who we genuinely are. And some of those things are incredible and some of those things are awesome and they see those things. And to just walk in humility in those things. But also it's us living vulnerably in such a way where we allow people to see that we're maybe not as put together as we think we are. And as we walk in that, we are sharing with them our true selves. Relational humility. Not conceit. Not haughtiness. We, we don't expect to walk into a room and expect to be the most important person there. There's a lot of leadership books around the nature of leadership, and one of those is uh, uh, that talk around the subject of what do you do when you step into a room and you find that you are the most important person in there. And that's just a reality of being in leadership sometimes, that you, you might be in a place of leadership when you step into a room and everybody turns in and expects you to lead, right? This happens sometimes in your own home. You step into that and there's a, a, a need for that to lead. As a teacher, every time you step into a classroom, that is the situation as you are. As an administrator, it's that kind of way. There's an expectation to lead. And as we step into those things, as we step into those relational moments, regardless of where we find ourselves in society's strata, His charge to us is to not be conceited. To be humble and genuine with the people that are around us and to invite them in to share in our humility. To share in genuine relationship. Now this is even when we encounter people that are completely outside of the church, completely foreign to the things of Scripture, that are living lives that are absolutely contrary to the things of God. We can still walk with them in genuine relational humility, not in conceit. And so doing, we can share this humility that God intends for us to have. The second thing that we want to share, in addition to this relational humility, is timeless hope. Timeless hope. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Uh, many of you probably remember what took place in uh, 2008 
When you woke up one day and you had been working for a number of years and you took a look at your uh, retirement portfolio and it was no longer what it used to be, right? This is what we call the, the, uh, the last big stock market crash that we've experienced in, uh, in our, uh, I mean, pretty much in, in our regular lifetime. It happened also in the 80s. Uh, and there were a lot of people, specifically the boomer generation that had just stepped into retirement, and all of a sudden, everything that they thought was certain, everything that they thought was secure was gone, Right? And this is the world that we live in, in a world that says, hey look, if you just work hard enough, save enough, plan accordingly, live this certain way, everything's going to be okay. And every cancer doctor can tell you, there's nothing certain. Wealthy, wealthy, wealthy people wake up one day and get cancer. It doesn't matter how much you think you have, your world can get snuck up out from under you. Somebody in our church that I, uh, I won't call out specifically, but their story is the story of that. They were telling me recently that the, uh, they said, I did everything right. Did everything I was supposed to do. Got good grades, got scholarships, uh, you know, went to college, got the job that I was supposed to did. I was moving in that direction. And then a car accident changed everything. And it, it all went away. Just in a moment. And in that moment that happens to, can happen to anybody, they find that they are in a place of hopelessness because they thought they were hoping in something that would last. And here's the scary part, church. If you and I are not careful, we'll do the exact same thing as any old pagan would. Because we think this moment, my health, my family, my house, my car, my job, my retirement savings, uh, my future plans, my vacation, right? If coronavirus taught us anything, you know, you, I mean, I worked, worked, I got this plan going, and it was, you know what the most worthless, worthless thing of 2020 was? Actually, it was the most worthless thing that I got from Tanana Chief's conference. It was a 2020 planner. <laughs> worthless. Absolutely worthless, right? Yeah, it made me laugh, right? They were like, well, we got a bunch of these. Let's just give them away. It was like, ha, 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 right? I mean, and so what is it that we are called to share with this world? We are called to share timeless hope. Hope that does not rest upon circumstances. Because what this is actually saying here is he says, tell them not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. They're trying to anchor themselves on what they think is certain and what they think is certain is their circumstances. And if the book of Job teaches us anything, circumstances definitely can change. In a moment. In an instant. And so how do we share timeless hope as Christians? Well, bringing up Job, 
There's an interesting thing about the book of Job. Right, Job tells us this crazy story, right, of this, this man who is just flourishing, right? His, he's got sons and daughters and he's, he's just wealthy and everything is great. And then we get this picture of God in heaven and Satan comes before him and he, he, uh, you know, God mentions Job and Satan says, well, if you take away his stuff and you take away his health and he'd curse you and die. And then the, the, he does all that and then you have this long story of Job's friends that come and check on him, right? And they're just idiots. Uh, and then you got Job that's saying, like, all of us would be doing that situation, like, God, I want my day in court, right? Why'd this happen to me? And then you get this profound statement where God finally does speak, and He says, Job, brace yourself like a man, for I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation, right? He gets this 40,000 billion, it's outside of all creation view of everything, and Job says, I got nothing, God. Right? It's an incredible story, and then you get the end of it, and he's restored. And here's the crazy thing about that. God, you know, Job's question of God is, God, why? Why is this happening? Right? And here's the crazy part, one of the crazy parts about Job. God never answers that question. He never answers this question. To Job, he never answers that question. But to us, he did. You see, the story of Job begins with describing Job and his prosperity. And it could have been you or me or any one of us in the middle of that story. And then we get this heavenly picture where God's on His throne and Satan comes before Him and says, God, God tells Satan, where have you been? He says, I've been roaming around the earth causing trouble. And God looks at Satan and He says, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him, blameless in his generation. God makes an absolute statement about Job. There's no wiggle room in the statement that God makes about Job. And Satan's response to God is not, yeah, 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 but here's other stuff. Ultimately, Satan's response to him is, you're lying. You're lying. And I'm going to prove it. You see, Job's response was not ultimately about Job's ability to be able to pursue through. It was ultimately about what God had said about Job. And here's where our timeless hope comes from. It's not about you figuring out your circumstances. It's about you and me trusting in God who is over our circumstances. So it's why the Apostle Paul said, whether I have plenty or nothing, I'm content. Where he tells the church in Philippi, if I'm in the body, it's for your sake. If I'm out of the body, I'm with the Lord. My circumstances don't matter. God does. And I think one of the great challenges that we face today is we face the reality that we have constant uh, interaction with the world, with news, like we've never had before in human history. I think it's when we say like, you know, we think, man, it just seems like things are getting worse and worse and worse. Do you know things have been bad for a really long time? But up until just a few years ago, there was no such thing as 24-hour news. Right? Maybe, maybe we weren't made to be omniscient, to be all-knowing. But we think we are. We want to have more and more and more and internalize it. 
And the reality of this is, it makes people feel hopeless. Things are nuts in Haiti. I can't fix that. There are people right now selling their children in Afghanistan so they don't starve to death. That's happening today, right now. I can't do nothing about that. The tension that's happening between uh, China and all the places that China wants to take over, I can't fix any of that, right? And I feel this weight of just the world. And then aside from all of that, man, what's going on with my cousins? And what's going on with my aunties? And what's going on with my neighbor? What's going on with my coworker? And what's going on with the president? What's not going on with the state government? What's going on? What's going on? And all of these things, and it just feels hopeless. So Christian, are we the kind of people that put our hope in the uncertainty of our prosperity? And for a lot of Christians, the answer is yes. That is what they put their hope in. And that's what they put their, that's what they show their hope is in. And he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who supplies richly us with all things to enjoy. If God is blessing you with something, you don't have to feel bad about that. He gave it to you to enjoy it. That's what He did in the beginning. He made the world. He made the world work the way the world was supposed to. And then He put Adam and Eve in it. And He said, work in it and enjoy it. That's what the original thing was. The work... Work was a... you know Sometimes we think work is a result of the fall. And some days it probably feels like that, right? But the result of the fall was that work would be hard... The work was intended to be enjoyable as we enjoyed all that God made. And so we find our timeless hope not in our circumstances, but in the God who is over our circumstances and in control of our circumstances and will take us through our circumstances regardless of how they turn out. So we want to share relational humility. We want to share timeless hope as, a, as Christians, as a, as a church. Third, we want to share what is more traditionally, when you think of share, we want to share time, talents, and treasures. Time, talents, and treasures. In verse 18 he says, Instruct them to do good. That's a movement through time. As you go, do good intentionally think about what it is that you are doing, what it is that you are planning for, how it is that you are engaging. And as you spend your time, the one thing that it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, you can't make any more of, how you spend that, spend it doing good. Be generous as we share our time. We have this phrase we uh, hear a lot of time. This is my time, right? I need some, or I need some me time, right? And there's nothing wrong with self-care. There's nothing wrong with uh, needing to be able to go. You know what? I'm too emotional right now to be able to engage uh, in these kind of things, and so I need to. I need to. I need to focus. I need to. I need to be intentional in this. You might be a, a severe introvert, in which case you have loved the pandemic, right? <laughs> Put me in perpetual quarantine, right? Uh, 
But the reality for us is as we go, we are called to do good, to share our time. And we share that time intentionally with people. We do that in all kinds of ways, right? Inviting people on a walk, helping somebody uh, fix something, or helping somebody move by intentionally sitting down with a cup of tea and just listening. We can share our time in ways that are intentional to do good. I was reminded of a, uh, a sermon uh, here recently that was talking about the, um, the nature of how we as churches engage in endeavors as a church uh, and how, you know, who do we work with and how do we work with them. And it, it basically uh, lumped it into three categories uh, that there are good works, gospel works, and church works. Uh, church works are very simple. It's those things that these are these are uh, very specifically church oriented. Uh, what kind of church are we? What do we specifically believe that the scriptures say? How are we going to engage as a church? Right. That's a very narrow thing, as that relates. But then there's a a step out of that of going. You know what? There are people that don't necessarily line up with us in nature of how does the church work. And so those individuals, uh, there's also the nature of gospel work, that there are other people that stand maybe outside of our uh, particular tradition of, uh, of, uh, of church expression, but they preach a saving gospel, they preach a biblical gospel, and so we want to come alongside them and work in gospel endeavors. But then you take one more step back out, and both of those all live under the roof of Christianity, right? There's one door, his name's Jesus, and you enter into, and inside of that house, there's a bunch of different bedrooms, right? You got this group, and this group, and this group, but they're all under the umbrella of uh, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, this picture of what it means to understand our need of a Savior and His work. And we may argue with each other all day long about which bedroom is better than the other one, but we're still under the same house, right? But when, there, when we change outside of the gospel, it comes to things like, well, what do you do with things like digging water wells uh, in impoverished countries or dealing with uh, domestic abuse or human trafficking? And what do we do as a church if there's like a Hindu group that wants to partner with dealing with, uh, you know, sex trafficking or there's a, uh, you know, a, a Wiccan convent that's, uh, you know, wanting to, uh, you know, engage in feeding the homeless in a, in a community? And how do, you, how do you engage with those kind of things? And the picture of it is painting that. It says, well, if you step outside your house and your neighbor across the street's house is on fire and your other neighbor comes out of their house, the first thing you don't ask of them is a statement of faith. You ask them, do you know how to work a fire hose? Right? And so you go grab the hose of your wicked neighbor and you go fight the fire. And then you, you call the Buddhist down the road and you tell him, come, hey, why don't you grab some buckets or help us if it's in the middle of winter? Why don't you, you know, bring some dry gloves because we're going to be freezing while we're doing it. And you just engage in good works. And we are called to do this as Christians to engage in good works to share our time in ways that are beneficial. They don't have to be specifically religious. They just need to be edifying. 
You could share your time by being a friend. That relational humility, ultimately the goal is for it to move into a depth of friendship. This is one of the things I find fascinating about, we, we did a study in the book of Proverbs, uh, I think it was uh, two years ago now, and the word uh, that is, uh, it, there's a lot of Proverbs that talk about friends, and a lot of uh, Proverbs that talk about neighbors, how you de- interact with your neighbors. Do you know it's the same word? It's the same Hebrew word. It's just proximity of those. So in other words, the, the, my neighbor is somebody that is relationally far away from me. They may not be physically far away from me, but they're relationally far away. They're kind of the other fellow. But the friend is the one that is close. In other words, my dear fellow. And the goal of us sharing relational humility with the people around us is that we would move from them just being the other person that we're being nice to, to being dear, and to being friends. And we do that by sharing time. Again, I think social media has changed the concept of how we think of friends, right? I friended you on Facebook. We never talk. We never spend any time together, but we are friends. I I mean, prior to Facebook, I think we might call that acquaintance, I think would be the proper term for that, right? But time is something we need to share. Talents is the next thing. He says, uh, instruct them to do good, moving through time, and to be rich in good works. In other words, this sense of bettering at it. As you uh, become a talented individual, we can share our talents with other people in ways that bless them. Our worship team showed us that this morning. They shared their talents, their giftedness, whether they were comfortable with it or not, they shared that with us. We've got people that are talented in all kinds of different ways. We've got people that are talented in teaching their particular subject and they share that in a way that is good and beneficial to people. We have people that uh, are talented in construction skills. We have people that are talented in, uh, in empathetic listening, which is a talent. We have people that are talented in storytelling, and so they share that. We have people that are talented in patience, and they share that. We can be talented in all kinds of things. They don't have to be talents in the way that the world looks at talents, but if it's something that you are good at, it's okay to be good at it, and it's okay to be humble in that by if somebody says, hey, you're really good at X, you don't have to be like, no, no, I'm really terrible at it. You can be humble by just simply saying, Thank you. And then sharing your talent. And then of course, being uh, talent or sharing our time talents also comes to the practical nature of treasures. Uh, He says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous. And ready to share. I've talked about this a number of times. The nature of uh, the way the Bible talks about finances for believers. Um, the the uh, concept of tithing, which is so often preached in evangelical churches, is an Old Testament concept. It's actually not a New Testament concept. Uh, the New Testament teaches that all of it belongs to the Lord. And so we are be obedient in how it is that we engage in that. 
uh, in all aspects of uh, our finances. So some of that plays into us setting aside in our heart, how am I going to help my church do what it needs to do? And so that's tithes and offerings. We use that term a lot. Uh, but to help that go along. But then the, the Bible also talks about uh, uh, living in such a way where we are trying to always increase our margins. And I love the Old Testament picture of that. paints this picture of um, you know they would tithe, give the first tenth of their offering, but they would also be very intentional in their edges of their field and their corners. And there's specifically a command that says, don't harvest that stuff, the margins of your field. Why? Because there's going to be widows and orphans and aliens and strangers that are going to need that. So don't, uh, you know, it's, it's not like we as Christians say, well, I tie 10%, the rest of the 90%, I can do whatever I want with it, just blow to the end of it. The goal of it is to say, how much margin can I leave for the sake of kingdom advancement so that if my church doesn't even need to know that my neighbor has a financial need if I know that it's there and God has given me the ability to have margin to be able to meet that kind of a need then I can share my treasures in a way that builds up the kingdom of God and I can do it in relational humility because everybody doesn't need to know it's an incredible thing and God does He says, instruct them to do good works, be rich in good works, to be uh, generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And of course, this is Jesus saying, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth can eat and fire can burn and thieves can break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because whatever you're... Uh, most proud physical possessions that you have here on earth. That can be a diploma, that can be your retirement portfolio, that can be your house, that can be your car, that can be your, your vacation scrapbook. Whatever those things are, if we show up to heaven carrying those things, we're going to feel ashamed. Because if we thought those were our greatest treasure, we're missing it. We're missing it. We were meant to enjoy those things, but they were not our greatest treasure. This is why he says in verse 19 that we are intended to share real life with people. Storing up for themselves treasure for a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is real Life or life indeed. We throw around phrases like, well, we just want to do life together. And oftentimes what that looks like is us living together in such a way where we're just kind of... There's low confrontation, high relationship, right? If it's on a grid, of this, the vertical axis is high relationship or low relationship. And the horizontal axis is, uh, is um, low conflict and high conflict. Or challenge, That's sorry, not conflict, but challenge. If we live in high relationship but low challenge, we live in kind of this warm fuzzy where we can say we're doing life with each other, right? These are our friends, but these are also the friends that would never ask us anything hard. They'll never challenge us in anything. They'll never, they'll never see something going wrong in our life and lovingly put their finger in our chest and saying, what are you doing? Right? That's, that's the world that we live in. With most of the people that are around us. 
You know, if you drop that scale and you go low challenge, low relationship, that's boring, right? That's some of the people that you might work with that you're just kind of like, yeah, they don't challenge me and I don't talk to them. We're not doing life, we're not doing anything. Then you go into the low relationship, high challenge side. That's the people that when they call you on their phone, you wince, right? You just see it on there and just like, oh, this is not going to be good, right? But real life is actually lived with people that are high relationship, high challenge. This is where growth happens. People say, I want to share real life with you. I don't want to ignore things about you. I don't want to ignore things about me. I don't want to ignore things about us. I don't want to pretend like the world isn't how it really is. And I want to do it with you. See, that's what... That's what it means for us to share real life. For us to live with each other in ways that are not just complacent with the realities of this world, but are real with the challenges of this world and real with the challenges of our own sinfulness. To walk together in that. We want to share real life. So we want to share relational humility, share timeless hope, share time, talents, and treasures, and we want to share real life as a church. That's a good vision, right? For us to be that kind of a church, a church that wants to share in this kind of way. But Paul ends this section with a warning against sharing that which wasn't given to you. Verse Timothy, or verse 20, uh, he says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted or deposited to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. And I love that the English uh, translators put it in parentheses, right? It's knowledge. Which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace to you. This is a warning that he gives against sharing that which is not entrusted to you by God. Meaning that everything physical that we're given is given to us by God. This is one of those hard realities that even when we get sick, we can trust God because that even came from God. Everything that we have is given to us. But what he's saying here, what is not given to you is worldly, uh, worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments that are opposite to the message of the Gospel. That he describes as some call knowledge. The word that is used here is gnosis. Uh, if you've ever heard the term the Gnostics, uh, every now and again there will be a uh, something will pop up in the news and it's like, ooh, there's been this new book of the Bible that's been discovered. Uh, it's the Gospel of Mary and we should all pay it. Or the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of whatever. They're not new. We've known about these things for some of them thousands, I mean like uh, over a thousand years. And these are all called the Gnostic Gospels. In other words, there are people that were like, oh, I've got new knowledge, new information. This changes everything. And we go, no it doesn't. It's not new. It's been being warned against by the apostles from the very beginning. That as we share 
this gospel truth, this transformation that we've invited people to come and see Jesus and we want to share the reality of what God has done in us with other people, make sure that we guard what has been deposited in us. That what has been given to us by God in this gospel message is not intended to be embellished. It's not intended to be altered. It's intended to be guarded. To be believed, to be treasured, because it's been entrusted to us. And he says, the warning is, if you don't do this, in other words, some that have not done this, some that have not guarded what has been entrusted to them, and they did listen to worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Some have professed these things and thus gone astray from the faith. I think this is the picture of what is painted that religion begat prosperity and the daughter consumed the mother. This knowledge, this wisdom that was so this that this age put forward set aside the things of God and said, you know what, yeah, yeah, that's great, that's wonderful, that's nice, that's fun. But let me tell you about this. So in our present day, we do have things like the prosperity gospel that is literally the epitome of this. But it also goes into all kind of other things that take the truth of what God has simply said in His Word. It says, ah, but we know better today. We're more enlightened today. We have more understanding. And it takes that which is entrusted to them and it alters it. And it does away with it. And so the danger for us, the warning for us, is not to share what wasn't given to us by God. The simple truth of the reality that I'm a sinner that needed a Savior. That's an undeniable fact. You can tell me all day long, Chris, you're good, you're not, you're special. And I'll tell you because I have spent time inside my own head. I needed a Savior. And I still need a Savior. That's why He's so precious to me. And if Jesus wasn't enough on the cross, I'm going to promise you I'm not enough. And I can't be. If Jesus wasn't enough on the cross, then His death was absolutely for nothing. That's what was given to me. That Jesus was enough. That He was the treasure worth selling everything for. This is why Jesus looks at that rich young ruler and says, this one thing you lack, go sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. He was basically saying this is the epitome of that treasure that's buried in the field that the man stumbles upon. Goes and sells everything that he has so he can buy that one field because that's where the treasure is. And Christian, if Jesus is not your greatest treasure, then I can't call you a Christian. I can call you a a religious person of the Christian tradition. 
can call you a, a, a westernized uh, Christian-like person. But if you replaced your name in verse 20, Oh, Chris, guard what has been entrusted to you. Can you answer that question by saying, I, I, I'm doing my best. I'm fighting for it because I, I've seen it. I've, I've seen it the way that Paul saw the majesty of, of God. That He alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. To no man has seen Him. To Him be all honor that I can give. To Him be eternal dominion. Can I submit to Him in everything? That I've seen Him in His splendor, seen Him in His wonder, and I'm blown away by who He is. And that's what's been entrusted to me. And I take the world's empty chatter and opposing arguments, and I call them false. Even though the world calls them knowledge. The world paints a picture and our world paints a picture that your highest goal is to achieve the American dream. And I might be here telling you today that the American dream might be the thing keeping you away from Jesus. If God gives you, in this moment, financial blessing, a blessing of health, a blessing of influence, an outpouring of uh, these good things that we can experience here, you who are rich in this present world, don't be conceited. Fix your hope on God who richly supplies you with all good things to enjoy. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for Your Word. Thanks that it is true and right and real. And God, this is for us. This is the vision that You have for us, that we would be a people that are generous and sharing everything that You have given us. The, the truth of Your Gospel, the time that You give us, the talents that You give us, the friendships that You give us. Help us to be real examples of real life in this present world. Change our view of the way that we're living our lives, not to embrace the worldless or world's uh, empty chatter, but to be fixated on who you are and what you've accomplished. God, we're so incredibly grateful that through Jesus, you were generous to us when we didn't deserve it. We love you, God. It's your name we pray. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.